You might be thinking, two strange readings to couple together. Hopefully I'll make a little bit of sense of it. For those who don't know me, I'm Graham. I'm what's called a past-it pastor. (laughs) Having retired a number of years ago. uh, But it's interesting that in the recent week or two, particularly, as we're about to move into a new era in the life of this community, in that we'll soon have a new lead pastor, I was reflecting back to my time uh, as I, when I was the pastor of Finch Hampstead Baptist Church. And particularly in 2011, now I know you can't believe I retired that long ago, but in 2011 I handed the baton over to a much younger associate minister, very much like this situation here. And there's all sorts of emotions flying around when that happens. When we first went to Finch Hampstead, there was a small group met in their tiny little chapel that was sort of out of the way of everybody. And after about 18 months, we moved, relocated up to the housing area into a school. And it just was coincidental that that Sunday on the preaching plan, it was the story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. And it seemed relatively significant at the time. Several years later, we moved into our new community centre, that's the park-built centre. And again, coincidentally, I can assure you it wasn't planned, because you can't plan anything where builders are concerned. You think you've got the date, and then it moves, and it moves. Coincidentally, it was the story of Joshua leading the Israelites across the Jordan into the Promised Land. And when it came to time to retire, and I was thinking, what am I going to preach on? Someone in the office very helpfully suggested that I use, I don't know if this works, after these things, the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land. (laughs) Well, we know the king is dead, long live the king but appointing a new lead pastor is significant. The question is, does it actually change anything? Well, I guess it will. It will change some things. But what doesn't change is our identity as people who are part of the community of God's people. We are Jesus followers. And that's what I want to think about this morning. The role of the pastor is hugely significant. But then so is our place as individual members of the body of Christ. That's why I want to tie those two readings together. Some things change, but our calling as followers of Jesus remains exactly the same. Now Jesus said, I am building my church. He is building his church. The question is, what does that mean for you? Jesus said, I am building my church. What does it mean for you that Jesus is building his church? For me, it's so much more than numbers. Of course, numbers are important. Jesus is calling thousands of people into his family. But it's more than just numbers. I think it's really about the who. The who. Because the church is a community of people. And I think the building work is taking place in people. Obviously, 
most obviously, I guess, it's taking people who have no faith to a place of faith. And that, in that way, Jesus is building his church. But I think it's also continuing. It's still happening in you and me. How good are you at making a decision? That's the first part. The second part is how good are you at carrying that decision through into action? I'm not looking for confession, but I know both of those stages are difficult. But I think the second part is probably more difficult than the first. Especially if it's about something, you're taking the decision about something that you know will take commitment. It will take effort. It may be something that you know is going to be very difficult. But you know it's the right thing. Despite it being difficult, despite it needing a lot of effort, a lot of commitment. There was a story of a a bunch of people in the middle of a raging storm. They were on a boat and the boat was sinking. And a helicopter was sent out to rescue. There were six people on board. The boat was sinking fast and as the helicopter came over they all grabbed onto the rope they're hanging on. But then the winch man in the helicopter was screaming, we can't carry all these many people at once. Six people was too much. It was putting a strain on the rope. One person, that's all it took, one person had to let go or the rope was going to break and everybody was going to fall back into the sea. Now there were five men Uh, Five women, sorry, get it right, five men and one woman. They all knew they had to do something. Somebody had to act, but nobody volunteered. Finally, in the midst of all this, I know it doesn't look very stormy there because you wouldn't be able to see the people if it was, but in the midst of all this storm, hanging on to the frame rope, the woman gave a short, impassioned speech. She would give up her life and save the others because that's what she always did. That's how she lived her life, giving up things for her family and for her children. The men were so moved by her speech, they all started clapping. (laughs) Sometimes, through no fault of our own, our best intentions come to nothing. Have you ever known that you needed to do something but just never got round to it? I think if I was to list it out, it would be a long piece of paper. I can think of many things in the house that I should do and don't. I can think of many things on a daily basis, I guess, that I know I ought to do, but I don't. But sometimes you get forced into it, you're cornered and you have no other option but to do it but then maybe you make a real heartfelt commitment to it yet you still don't do it my guess is that in this room there's a lot of good intentions that have never materialised into action now what's that got to do with following Jesus I think it's got everything to do with following Jesus Because we have a lot of good intentions. We don't always follow them through into action. 
Jesus made two significant promises. Interesting that Catherine mentioned the promises of Jesus this morning. The first of them that we read was, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is the builder. He's got the power. He's got the power to build, to rebuild, to construct, to reconstruct, because Jesus is the power for change. And he's promised he will build. He will do it, and he does it. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. The church is a building site. God at work, it should say. Caution, God at work. The church over the centuries has had its high moments, it's had its low moments. But through it all, Jesus remains faithful to his promise. He is building his church. Well, the second promise is when he said, I will send the Holy Spirit. And at that Pentecost celebration, the waiting was over, the Spirit of God blew through that group, fired them up, not just to revitalise them, but to give them that new inner power for life, the power for change, the power to change in good intentions into real action. Now these two things in my mind are linked because Pentecost was and still is essential to the building of the church. Jesus is the power within. One of the things about Alpha, I guess, is that we try to take people from a situation of perhaps being just inquisitive to what is it that church is all about. And for so many people, it's just about rituals. It's about people turning up and going through some strange motions. And we need to get them to understand that that's not really what it's all about. It's about the power for change. It's about connecting with God and letting the power of God flow through our lives and affect us and to carry on affecting us. And that's why I think Jesus said, I will build my church. Not just that there's going to be loads of people when Peter preaches turn their allegiance from whatever it was before to following Jesus but to carry on through life change, not just going through new set of rituals, but through being different people. So I will build my church. It was made, as you picked up a little bit in that reading, it was a discussion about what people understood of Jesus. When I think back, and there was something uh, when we were in our home group, this life group, sorry, this week, uh, just made me think that Jesus came to earth in an insignificant way. Hardly anybody knew that he'd arrived, and those that did didn't really understand it. And for 30 years, nothing much really seemed to happen, not that we know of anyway. But then, pow, for three years, he changed the world. And it just struck me that, uh, and this is, sorry, I'm, I'm doing a Ewan, I'm going off at a tangent. Uh, perhaps we'll miss that, I don't know. Um, but it did strike me that 
for so many of us, there seem to be significant times in our life. You know, often I hear people say, but what is it God wants me to do with my life? Well, very often it's just a case of becoming more Christ-like and then there's a phase in our life, a time in our life, when he says, now, that's what I want you to do. That's our kind of ministry time. So all I want to say, while I've digressed, is that for a lot of people, I've heard people say, but you know, I just live my life and look after my family, I go to work. Nothing terribly significant seems to happen. The most significant thing in life is becoming more Christ-like because that's how Jesus is building his church. It's based on understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, the man from God. And when Peter acknowledged Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the anointed one of God, he was affirming that there's something now going to change. I now understand you as being the Christ. I can't remain untouched. My life is now changed. And this was the foundation of what he was going to build his life. And that's the foundation on which we build our lives. Recognising that Jesus has come from God, from the heavenly dimension. You know, that is mind-blowing, just saying that. Jesus has come from the heavenly dimension, whatever that is, to be like us, to reconnect us to God. So the church is built on on faith in Christ. Now, the second part of that passage, there's a huge amount of debate about what was meant when he said, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. I understand that to mean that Jesus is the rock, the foundation on which the church is built. The church is not built on Peter, it's built on Jesus. And it sounds to me as though he's saying, you are Peter Petros the rock, but on this rock, Jesus, I will build my church. Jesus' death and resurrection broke the power of Hades, the place of the dead. And the power to build the church comes from heaven itself, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean in practice? What does it mean in practice that Jesus is building the church through you and me? There's loads of people that believe that there is some sort of vague God or higher being Not everyone obviously accepts Jesus is the Christ. But the Spirit of God draws people to a place where they understand that to be true. And I guess all of us, most of us, know that, we've experienced that. But then what? Is that it? Does the building stop? Building the church is not really about convincing people that it's worth our while to come and sit on our lovely new chairs in an attractive setting. I do love the decorations. We was trying to persuade Matt the other day to make sure they stay up because I think there was a plan to remove them, but I think it's fabulous. But it's not just about getting people into the building, onto the seats. This is just a gathering place. The church is us, and it's us that are being built transformed into the people 
who are Christ-like. That's what's happening to us, isn't it? Is it? Are you still being transformed? Or is it stopped with the passing of years? The older I get, I'm getting pretty ancient, the more I realise there's still a huge amount of construction necessary. I come back to my early question, how good are you at making the decision and then carrying it through into action? Because becoming more Christ-like requires an act of the will. Spending time together, discovering more about God through the scripture and discussing all of that, supporting one another in practical ways, regularly sharing in times of collective worship. All of this is important, it's appealing, it's attractive and it's relatively easy. The only real effort, I think, for a Sunday is getting up in time to arrive before the coffee's cleared away. Becoming more Christ-like requires discipline. And that's why Jesus called for disciples. It requires discipline. Not just to make a decision, but to live the life. How quickly our high aspirations can fail to materialise. How quickly in the cut and thrust of everyday life, all of those good intentions go by the board. Sometimes, sadly, even in church life, I have had the misfortune, or was it, to have to moderate in a church where there was a a significant issue after the pastor moved on and uh, I could not believe the language and attitudes that were being expressed in the church meeting. Uh, It took a little bit of sorting out It does happen. Fortunately, in the seven years as we've been here, you are a lovely bunch. And I'm sure it wouldn't happen here. But in the cut and thrust of everyday life, it's easy to slip into a different mode. Surely the answer, we say, is to be filled with the Spirit. Does this thing work? Well, that's absolutely correct. But read what it says on the label. The Holy Spirit will teach you, will remind you. The Holy Spirit will guide you. He will speak the words of Jesus into your life. The Holy Spirit works in our minds. It affects our thinking. Because God doesn't, refuse, uh, doesn't force us to be anything we refuse to be. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't reject the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Don't fight against the Holy Spirit. Don't ignore the Holy Spirit. God speaks into our lives. But we're responsible for changing our behaviour, our actions. And there's the rub. To quote quote Anne Robinson, who is no relation, we are the weakest link. I've spent my life reading the Bible, studying it, reading hundreds of books, A lot of information about faith and practice. But I'm still struggling to apply most of it on a consistent basis. I can be a saint on occasions, but there's a lot more occasions when I'm a sinner. One example, and this is why 
the second reason that I wanted to just focus on for a moment this morning. It's been on my mind for a long time now. It's all about language and attitude. Language is what distinguishes humans from the animal kingdom and it's both a blessing and a curse. Language can turn doves into wolves. And I guess like a lot of people over recent, probably few years, I'm disturbed by the way society talks and behaves. Now I'm not going to get political. My wife warned me not to get political this morning. So I'm not going to show the video clip I was thinking of showing. And I'm not going to tell you what was in it. But two major events have brought this into the public domain. The development of the internet and Brexit. Because the ability to say whatever you like from behind the curtain of your computer has caused huge issues. And the differences of opinion over Brexit is stirring up such strong passions, it's bringing out the worst in people. Even people of faith. And I think in both of these areas, what we might have called healthy debate is so often angry, personal nastiness. Which is why I focused on this particular verse. Do not let any unwholesome wor- uh, words or talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And I think in our technological age, we can add to that, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, to include tweets, emails, Facebook, and all the other things that I've never heard of. Or if you mentioned them, I wonder what on earth they were. We seem to be living in an increasingly angry society. Everything. From EastEnders, I ever see the uh, trailers, and I'm horrified by the trailers, I don't know what the programme's like, through to slanging off the local council. Maybe we do have much to complain about. And we feel justified in expressing our views very firmly. We're probably convinced that what we're saying is helpful for building others up. The shenanigans in Parliament over recent weeks are a classic example. Everybody is blaming everybody else for intemperate language. And they're using intemperate language to blame the other people. Jesus said something about a speck of dust and a plank. And I think a lot of people need to understand that. James said, with our tongue we praise the Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. The Holy Spirit challenges us, it nudges our thinking. We change our behaviour. We know in our minds what it is to be Christ-like. <coughs> But the message doesn't always get through to the tongue. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. It's for you. I think this is probably, probably the most difficult in the Bi- verse in the Bible to put into practice. I know Christ-likeness is much more than what we say. And I don't want us to forget the other aspects of our character 
our actions. But my feeling is that speaking only helpful and beneficial things is probably our biggest challenge. I like a good, robust discussion. I can get quite passionate about things. I know I seem a genteel, timid sort of a person, but I can get quite worked up about things. But not everyone has the same temperament as me, and I know that sometimes what I think is a good, robust discussion to some people is just an argument. So there is a sense in which we need to be careful what we say and do. Deal with sensitivity other people. And for me, sensitivity is something that is still very much a work in progress. What is crucial, where there is a difference of opinion, is that we don't descend into demeaning other people. How easily we call people idiots and worse especially when we're talking about politicians. And you might turn around and say, but they deserve it. Jesus said, I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Rakar, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now there's the thought. And I don't understand this as just being limited to talking to each other within the community of believers. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Love your neighbour. Yeah, we do have to deal with some people at times, which brings out the worst in us. We have to stand against evil and injustice, but not by ranting at people who you disagree with or who disagree with you, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now, I know the way we talk isn't the only area, but I think it's one of the most important and there is a lot of building work to be done. When God took the Israelites on that journey through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into Jordan, into the Promised Land, it wasn't meant to be the end of their journey. It was to be a permanent location from which they were to be God's community, shining out like a beacon. And this is when they lost the plot completely. They became self-centred. But the incarnation brought a new beginning for God's community. And that message, Jesus said, is summed up in love God, love your neighbour. That sums up all that God wants for you and for the church. Jesus is building his church because it's his chosen method of communicating, expressing his love from a world that's all at sea and disconnected from its creator. But it's still a building site. The work isn't completed yet and sometimes we need safety boots and a hard hat. maybe we can recognise bits of ourselves that still need a bit of snagging to be done. When I was preparing for this morning, this week, two images came into my mind. The first was a deserted, half-completed building site. Nothing happening. It was on its way, but nothing was happening. 
The second image was from one of those TV house doing up programs where an estate agent is reviewing the work that somebody had done on a house and he says, well, yeah, it's pretty good if you want to rent it, but if you want to sell it, you should really do it to a higher standard. That spoke to me. Where are we at? A lot of work has been completed, but nothing seems to be happening at the moment. The quality standard is reasonable, but potentially there's so much more to becoming Christ-like. Well, this morning the Holy Spirit is at work. He's teaching, he's reminding, he's guiding. He's speaking the words of Jesus into our hearts and minds. But it requires our application to translate good intentions into Christ-likeness. And that's what God's calling us as he builds his church and continues to build his church. Let's pause for a moment and just reflect. See what God is saying to you. Is God saying anything to you? Is he saying anything to you and you're just not listening? I'm really challenged about the way we interact with each other. But there is more to it than that. A character that shines the qualities of the Holy Spirit through our lives. The gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The character of Christ lived in me. What is the Holy Spirit tapping you on your shoulder about this morning? Lord God, we, we know that we're far from perfect. We know that we desire to be more Christ-like, but run out of steam so quickly. This morning I pray, Lord God, that your spirit will speak into our lives, each one of us. Be the power within us to live for Christ, to have Christ-like lives in what we say and what we do. May we bring the light of Christ into other people's lives. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.